All right, so welcome then to our fourth and final session of this series on the liberating teachings of the Buddha. And we've gone through a lot of different uh, areas at not a very, uh, you know, kind of a whirlwind pace, it feels like. And I guess we're going to continue today, but um, that was kind of the aim, actually, was to take a whirlwind tour through these teachings, yeah, these more liberating teachings. And um, today, uh, you know, we've talked about the radical change that comes about with full awakening, like becoming an arhant or a Buddha, and how this uh, unconditioned or awakening or nibbana, it's not really a place, you know, like somewhere you're going to go. Uh, and so that kind of eliminates the idea of a transcendent realm or of heaven or something like that. Uh, and nor is it kind of a blank experience with uh, all the elements of your life kind of vanish and are not going to come back. Um, instead, you know, we see that awakening is a change of perspective. And it's maybe something akin to, like the word, coming out of a dream and seeing things clearly and freshly, something more like that. Um, so then the question might arise, though, are we kind of hopelessly asleep? as we are much of the time, or else, you know, we've, we've made it and like fully awake and that's it. Uh, actually, it's not, not such an either or on that either. And it turns out that many, many wisdom traditions acknowledge that at some point, a sincere and dedicated practitioner makes some kind of a shift or a transition uh, such that they have a much clearer idea what practice is about. You know, it becomes much easier to navigate because we've gotten our bearings in a sense. And this is not really just an insight, you know, a sense of, ah, I see something that I didn't understand before. It's actually an irreversible transformation that uh, brings one into a new way of functioning. And this change doesn't mean that you're completely awake yet. It's kind of partial awakening. And all the strands of Buddhism acknowledge uh, some kind of a change like this. And it's also found, for example, in mystical Christianity, um, as well as a number of other wisdom traditions. So uh, I don't want to go into too much of that philosophical side, but I'll just say that in Theravada Buddhism that we are grounded in, this transition is called stream entry. And it's the point where the person has entered or tapped into some kind of a stream of Dhamma that's going to carry the person to the ocean of awakening. We wander around for a while and then tap into the stream. Or as another teacher says, you know, we're always in the stream of experience, but we find a current within that stream. And only the current is what's going to the ocean, right? The eddies are not. And so, you know, we, we find a way that in our life, as we're flowing through it, we tap into a current that will eventually lead to awakening. This is just one view of it. Uh, I'm offering one image. There are many in the suttas, but that maybe gets us started. Um, so what happens at this transition? That's what we're going to talk about today, according to what the texts say. Um, it's generally said in the text that a person lets go of three views that are not helpful, three views that hinder awakening. They also gain some excellent qualities, in particular, unshakable confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. That's the hallmark of stream entering, but also in addition, um, 
the person becomes extremely ethical. You know, ethics becomes really the foundation of the way that they are in the world, having understood clearly the, the value of that. Um, traditionally, it's also said that a person only has a certain number more births, uh, if you believe in the rebirth idea, but that's not required. It's not required. Um, Let's see, so maybe more fundamentally or at kind of a basic level, the person has experienced for themselves very clearly what the aim of practice is, the cessation of suffering, maybe just for a moment, but it's become crystal clear because it's in their own experience, it's not an intellectual thing anymore. And then, you know, there's some sort of a shift in the mind-body system, it remembers that in some way. But I think it's not so much the particular experience that matters that much. It's more what it does. It's more the, the change that then comes about, which is more what we're going to talk about today. So I want to make a mathematical analogy, if you will permit that of me, you know, what kind of mind I have. So there's, um, <laughs> there's if you think about the mind uh, that we start with in our <laughs> in our early life, you know, that crazy mind a long time ago that we remember, oh my gosh, my teenage years, what was I thinking? So, you know, that kind of mind, the, um, the potential for suffering in a mind like that is essentially infinite because anything, anything could become a cause of suffering for a mind that doesn't, is just, you know, habitually going along, doesn't have any understanding or any practice, potentially infinite suffering. And if you believe in rebirth, it really is infinite because without practice, the cycle of samsara goes on and on and on and on and never ends. So stretched out, yeah, there will be infinite suffering for a person who uh, doesn't have any practice. With the transition to stream entry, there's a change from infinite to finite. That's a huge difference. I don't know what the number is. <laughs> it might be a very big number, but there are certain areas where that person can really no longer suffer. It's just not possible to do certain kinds of suffering. So it changes from infinite to finite. And then, um, of course, an arahant has no suffering. So you have to then still practice to get from finite to zero. But that's a different thing than going from infinite to finite. So it's a significant transition, even though there's still suffering after that. Um, so that's, that's this is, of course, not found in the suttas. This is my own analogy, but I want to... Um, just offer that in case modern language works. So today we're going to look a little bit at what the suttas say about this transition. Um, it's all over the discourses, by the way. It's not at all an obscure teaching. There were so many I had a hard time narrowing it down to three. <laughs> but let's go ahead then and have a look. Um, I'm going to share this one. So this is the first reading that we are going to look at, um, and it's called A Fingernail, SN 13.1. And I wonder if somebody would, um, would like to read this whole thing. It's pretty short. I will. OK, thank you, Joel. Or was that? No, Leanne. So I have heard, at one time the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jatis Grove, Antetapintika's monastery. Then the Buddha, picking up a little dirt, a little bit of dirt under his fingernail, addressed the mendicants. What do you think, mendicants? Which is more, a little bit of dirt under my fingernail or this great earth? 
Sir, the great earth is far more. A little bit of dirt under your fingernail is tiny. Compared to the great earth, it is not nearly a hundredth or a thousandth or a hundred thousandth part. In the same way, for a noble disciple, accomplished in view, a person with comprehension, the suffering that's over and done with is more than what's left in is tiny. Compared to the mass of suffering in the past, that's over and done with. It's not nearly a hundredth, a thousandth, or a hundred thousandth part, since there are at most seven more lives. That's how very beneficial it is to comprehend the teaching and regain the vision of the teaching. Okay, thank you. That was good. Um, so this is a pretty kind of amazing analogy. Um, I, f I found it hard to wrap my mind around. Uh, I'm curious about how this struck any of you. I could say something, Kim. Please. I kind of forgot that we were talking about or, or studying about stream entry and what this um, teaching said to me was that uh, something can happen that causes us suffering. Um, and and um, that if we carry that with us, we can suffer greatly over and over again on this thing that has already passed and is over. Um, but now I see that it means that um, once, uh, once you have awakened, there is no more suffering. Well, there's a tiny bit yeah, left okay. under the fingernail <laughs> for the, compared to the mountain or the earth. Yeah, but you know, um, I don't think what you, your original interpretation is outside of what we could understand from this in sense that if we have something that we're clinging onto and that we, you know, continually always fall into the same pattern. Does anybody have any patterns in their mind that you keep falling into? I certainly do. And so, you know, it's like you get angry about this thing and then you get angry again the next time and the next time and the next time. And the total amount of suffering from that kind of anger is pretty much infinite because every time it happens, if you're not mindful, you'll go into that suffering again. And so you, you can build up this mass like the great earth. And then, yeah, but if we, if we would find a way to let it go, then even in that moment, we've eliminated quite a lot of suffering, you know, and, and just continuing on with it. So I think that, you know, I think we could stretch it into that understanding of a, a moment's letting go does a similar thing. There are other analogies, by the way, um, in this same section uh, about this one about the earth is particularly striking, but they're all kind of striking. There's another one about the confluence of five rivers uh, coming together, which you can imagine is a lot of water. And the Buddha compares that amount of water to three drops of water. Uh, it's the difference between the suffering remaining uh, and the prior suffering. 
it's interesting to me that um, the difference is so incredibly great. Um, and that he even specifically says there are at most seven more lives. Yeah. He actually yeah, this brings in the rebirth idea. That's surprised me. So, yeah. Yeah, well, we have an infinite number of lives potentially until this point. And so, yeah. But you can imagine, you know, there is quite a lot of suffering in seven lives. Uh, if you add up all of oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's been cut down. Um, and that's at most. Go ahead, Jill. Just to say something about the form, it's very familiar. The, the Buddha compares something small to something absolutely incredible. There was something that was only one sixteenth the illumination of the moon. Oh, yes. And, the um, light of wisdom. And um, also, I'm, I'm kind of forgetting, but it seems to me there is something in the simile of the saw. Is that, is that my not correct on that one possibly not but i'm just thinking this form repeats itself in a lot of different suttas it does oh, what is the handful of leaves the handful of leaves uh is the mountain that the buddha teaches compared to what he right. all the leaves in the forest is what he knows so he's really uh, given us the cliff notes here yeah. and then i guess there's another one you're right that um the amount of tears that we have shed um based on our own grief and suffering because of clinging is greater than the amount of salt water in the ocean, you said. And so that's the amount of suffering that we've brought on ourselves. I guess yeah, while, I while we're unmuted, uh, I guess to me that this is very encouraging, highly encouraging, because I guess in my mind without really formalizing it or really thinking a hardly hard about it, uh, my sense of that kind of shift would be more like the final stage of enlightenment, like an arahat. But he's saying the very first stage of enlightenment is this much of a shift. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's very that, to me. That's very encouraging that you could reach that spot um, just with the first stage. Yeah, I think so too. It is quite encouraging. Just a little bit more to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, there are suttas also that kind of, there's one that kind of enumerates how many of these different stages of awakening people the Buddha knew. And he says that for stream enterers, there are lots and lots and lots of them He's in his time. Uh, now, of course, we don't have the Buddha teaching us directly. So he doesn't make it out as something that's extremely difficult. It's also something that many lay people do uh, in the teachings. Teachings, so it doesn't require you know ordaining or anything like that. You can live in your life. Um, I think it does require some sincerity and some dedication, uh, and some understanding of what you're doing uh, to navigate to that point. But yeah, and it's very valuable. Clearly, okay. So this one I I kind of intended as an introduction. Maybe we'll go on then. Some of the other, the other ones are a little bit more in them. So let's try going to this next one, where um, for complicated reasons, I really liked Bhikkhu Bodhi's the best, and it wasn't on Sutta Central. So um, this is the section that I wanted us to have a look at. Would somebody please read this um, 
Someone like to read this paragraph for the group? I will. Okay. Who'd you Thanks, say that? <laughs> Just as a clean cloth with all marks removed would take dye evenly, so too, while the householder, oops, Sally, sat there, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma arose in him. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Then the household Upali saw the Dharma, attained the Dharma, understood the Dharma, fathomed the Dharma. He crossed beyond doubt, did away with perplexity, gained intrepidity, and became independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. Thank you. That was great. So this is, I know it's kind of formal sounding language, and this is um, a very classic description of what happens to a person at the transition point of stream entry. So there's a number of things, like this language is repeated in a number of suttas. Uh, I just picked it out of this one. Um, so it, first of all, Upali is a householder, so he's like us. and. It happens that the scene in this case is that he's uh, sitting with the Buddha, getting a Dharma talk from him. And so he's not in deep meditation. He's not, um, certainly not a monk. I don't even know if he was a meditator or not. Um, but he was, of course, getting sort of the best possible conditions by getting a Dharma talk from the Buddha. And it was a special Dharma talk where the Buddha kind of prepared his mind ahead of time. And when Upali was feeling really confident and happy, the Buddha gave him the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. <clears throat> and then we have this paragraph. So we have some, some sort of code words in here, this thing called the vision of the Dhamma, also called the Dharma eye, um, is uh, the arising of right view. And so this, these spotless and immaculate are supposed to kind of imply like that same phrase undefiled that we saw in the very first um, teaching we had, the unaging, unailing, undefiled supreme security from bondage. And so, the, but the key phrase is this one that, I've put, that I italicized. It's not italicized in the original palm leaf version. I don't even know how you do that in Pali, <laughs> but I put it in. Um, so all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. This is a phrase that um, could be translated in a number of ways, and that was my objection <laughs> to some of the translations. I like this translation. Um, but maybe I'll just, I don't want to interpret it. It's actually a very deep phrase. Did it strike anyone particularly? Jill, yeah. This is the same phrase with which Kondanya um, yes. became an arhat, I think. No, he became a stream enterer at that moment. This was given during the first, the Buddha's first discourse. Yeah. yeah. So okay. I could have chosen that one. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same phrase. It's said um, multiple times. It's often said at stream entry. Not by everyone, but by a number of them. So Jill is referring to one of the Buddha's five companions that he practiced with before his awakening when he was doing ascetic practices. And they all practiced together, starving themselves and 
striving really hard. And finally the Buddha gave up on that and went and sat under the Bodhi tree and awakened. And the first people he went back to teach were these five. And when he gave his first sermon, uh, it is said on the turning of the wheel of Dharma on the Four Noble Truths, uh, one of them attained stream entry. So this is also sort of interesting to know is that the very first teaching the Buddha gave, like only one person attained partial awakening. <laughs> you know, that was it. But it was enough. It was enough. That was the establishment of the Sangha. Because as soon as Kondanya understood, there was one other person who was guaranteed to awaken. That's the other thing about stream entry is that's the point where you're guaranteed to awaken eventually. Uh, before that, it's not guaranteed. Um, so this thing, this phrase is maybe, Bruce, were you leaning forward to say something? But I didn't, I didn't need to interrupt you. Uh, but something that's kind of fun about this, uh, this little paragraph here is Jill and I, by mistake, oh. read <laughs> the whole 50, well, we sort of ended up having to skim it because it's really oh, long. Are you going to tell about what comes in the next paragraph? <laughs> yeah. And so the background of this is that there, there were three Janes and they were, um, they, they were wanting to sort of perhaps trip up the yeah. Buddha. And so they sent uh, Upali eventually as an ambassador, but they were a little worried. One of them was particularly worried that the Buddha would eventually convert him, bring him into the fold and he would become, <laughs> he would follow the Buddha rather than be and sure enough, this is what happened. So it's kind of yeah. fun to, to look at it's it. It's true. Yeah, so Upali was a prominent householder. He was, yeah. you know, a yeah. well-known uh, supporter of the Jains, very wealthy, had a fancy household with servants and all this stuff. And so, yeah, he tries to argue with the Buddha and eventually decides to, eventually gets awakened. It's not pretty, pretty good. It's not like he just got converted. <laughs> he actually, uh, of course, the next paragraph, which I thought you were going to refer to, um, the next thing Upali says is, I'm sorry, Master, but I'm very busy and I have to go back to my duties. He doesn't even say, wow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the Buddha says, that's fine, you can go. <laughs> but anyway, it's a funny scene. So the, the ordinary mind reads all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation and says, so what? You know, that doesn't sound that profound, but it is actually quite profound. Um, the effect is huge. If you really understood that absolutely everything that arises is subject to passing away, nothing endures forever, nothing is permanent, nothing, no thing, nothing that can arise is permanent, you can no longer believe in the permanent abiding self. You can't, you can't believe in that anymore. So this is equivalent to understanding selflessness, the first part of it. You don't give up everything about about I, it turns out there are two dimensions to, uh, to that aspect of the mind. One of them is the belief in an abiding personality that is you know, personal to you and uh, has real existence. That goes at stream entry. You can no longer believe in yourself that way. But you still have what's called the conceit I am. You still have a sense of existence, a sense of being, uh, an existing individual in the world, even though you no longer believe that that is anything that can that has an unchanging quality to it. So that's a nuance we don't need to go into. But this is what's where you let go of the fetter of personality view. That's one of the views that you 
no longer have. You also let go of doubt because we have here crossed beyond doubt. It's one of the qualities of being a stream mentor. So no personality view, no doubt. The other thing that happens is you no longer um, place belief in rights, and, well, I should say practices and precepts as being um, the cause. Remember I talked last time that they don't cause awakening. You no longer believe that at stream entry because you understand what, what it is. Jill. You're still muted. You're still muted. Yeah. There. Um, interestingly, Ajahn Sumedho calls adherence to rites and rituals cultural conditioning. Cultural conditioning like also. I like That's that. a good one. Because mm -hmm. you can, yeah, you no longer see any aspect of what you are made up of as being permanent and unchangeable. So you see, in fact, what you see into this attained the Dhamma or understood the Dhamma is you see into the very process by which things arise and pass. All that's subject to arising is subject to cessation. You understand how that comes about. The very way that things become things is seen through. That's one way to describe it. Other people have different experience. Like for example, I don't think this is the same experience every time. I think the insight you get is the same. So I, I don't, you know, but, for other people, uh, some schools of Buddhism favor stream entry being a vanishing, a complete vanishing of all experience for one moment, and then it comes back. But you have at that moment the understanding that everything that has ever arisen ceased, and so you can no longer then believe in the permanence. Basically, you no longer believe in permanence. And it's it has a huge impact on one's life because so much of our suffering comes from wanting to get something and keep it wanting to hold on to what we've gotten, not wanting to change something that can't be held fixed anyway. And we fight and we fight and we grasp and we resist. And a lot of that activity around permanence uh, starts to really quiets down because you just can't believe in it at some level. The mind still has a lot of momentum and habit in that direction. We do still cling. Um, we haven't eliminated uh, greed and hate completely from the mind, um, but a lot of it is started to loosen, let's say. Um, okay, further comments on this? Somebody wrote chat. I'm curious about um, what it says at the end, became independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. Thank you, just as I was saying that, as asking for questions, I thought, oh, and I should comment on, we should think about this one too independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. So the teacher's dispensation is just a word for Dhamma uh, in this. So you know, in the Dharma, you understand. So this is similar to understood the Dharma. So when you've seen the Dharma, when a person has seen the Dharma for themselves, they know and they, uh, they don't need in a sense, somebody else to tell them uh, what, you know, what something means or what something is. I'll be really careful with that though, because you can sound like, oh, you don't need a teacher anymore. There is actually a sutta where it says, Sariputta teaches people for the first stage of awakening and Moggallana, who's the Buddha's second disciple, teaches them for full awakening. So there is actually very much a use for a teacher after stream entry, but the person is not doing it anymore from a, a sense of dependence. Um, on somebody else. It's only to speed the process, to 
help work things out, to talk with someone who's farther along than them. Um, so, yeah, but independence is a hallmark of having seen for yourself. You don't, you know, now you know. It's said that somebody who's a stream enterer in the text, it says that they are no longer afraid to uh, debate anybody because they know. <laughs> Uh, they wouldn't go out and seek it, but you know they're not afraid of any challenges to their practice, and they also, um, yeah, they've they've become independent in that sense. So independent in terms of their knowledge. Obviously, we're completely you know you you understand interdependence quite well <laughs> at stream entry because there's everything is conditioned, but in terms of knowledge, we do become independent. <coughs> Bruce. No, no, okay, you're just leaning forward. Okay, um, so as usual, I've gotten a little ambitious, so I was hoping we could go on to the last reading. Don't worry if you don't completely understand this, because it's like impossible that we'll completely understand all of these teachings uh, during this course. <laughs> so I want to go on to this last one which has a lot of interesting things. We're not gonna end up being able to read all of it, probably. Um, so by the way, SN, the MN48 is a wonderful sutta. It's about community. It's about like the qualities that uh, make for a loving and harmonious community, something that we can all relate to. And you might not be surprised that the beginning part of it, it has six principles of cordiality, six things that are useful for community. You might not be surprised that the first five are loving kindness, loving kindness and loving kindness, <laughs> and then also uh, generosity and virtue. So it's loving kindness in, in uh, action, speech, and mind. And then generosity and then virtue. That's the part that we didn't read. And then the sixth um, of the principles of cordiality, interestingly, is right view. So the sick, the, one of the best ways to be a community member is to attain stream entry, to be a good community member is to attain stream entry. And people who are stream enterers are much better at living harmoniously than people who are not. And, that's, and then the Buddha goes into, in this last section, an unfolding of what he means by somebody who is a stream enterer being a good contributor to a community. And so he starts out, he calls them the six warm-hearted qualities. Isn't that nice? The six warm-hearted qualities of loving kindness in body, speech, and mind, generosity, virtue, and right, wise view. So the chief is the view that is noble and emancipating, that leads the one who practices it to the complete ending of suffering. So a view that is guaranteed to go to the complete ending of suffering is the wise view that a stream enterer has. Um, so he has this nice image of the roof. And so um, just to frame this, and then I'm gonna, uh, we're gonna read each of the, I, I did them in bold so we can find them among all this text. There are seven things then named in this sutta, seven things named after as subsets of right view uh, that are useful. And they're called in the commentaries, uh, they're called the seven great reviewing knowledges. They're how you can know that you have right view. Like, how do you know if you're a stream enterer? I mean, if you say, if you understand, of course, that everything that arises passes away, okay, 
But if you want to know, remember I said, it's not so much the experience, like some whiz-bang experience that you have. That's nice, but all experiences arise and pass. What matters is the change that comes about from the understanding that you have. And so these are ways that a person could look in their own experience, their own life, and know whether or not they had really entered the stream. So um, we have a number of them here. Um, are we going to go through seven of them? Why don't we just read the bold things? Could someone read this first bolded um, I'll do it. summary? Okay, Val. There is nothing that I'm overcome with internally and haven't given up because of which I might not accurately know and see. My mind is properly disposed for awakening to the truths. Okay, thank you. So then it says, this is the first knowledge that people have that is not shared with ordinary people. So if we read the paragraph you know, above that, it says, if you get overcome with sensual desire, overcome with ill will, dullness, any of the five hindrances, you know, we know the mind gets overcome by those. But this, it doesn't say, notice that you're never going to have the hindrances again. It just says there's nothing that I'm overcome with because of which I might not accurately know and see. So if you have a lot of sensual desire in the mind, but you can see it so clearly uh, that you're, you're sure that you've got it, but you, even if it hasn't let go, a person could still be a stream enterer. But if we get repeatedly overcome, overwhelmed, you know, that's like the flood coming over the island. The island gets over flooded. It's not an island. So um, being a stream enterer means the island has risen up a little bit above the floodwaters. Um, so this is the first indication that, you know, that we have some um, ability to see more clearly what's going on in the mind such that we, uh, can always pretty much know what's there. All right, who would read the second one, please? I'll do it. Okay. When I develop, cultivate, and make much of this view, I personally gain serenity and quenching. Thank <laughs> you. So yes, so when when we develop further this um, understanding, whatever that is that comes at stream entry, then um, it's, it's a view that, that leads to peace. Quenching means um, reduction of suffering. So it's something that leads to a sense of peace and a sense of um, ease, peace and ease. So when I rest my mind in this, whatever this understanding is, do I personally gain uh, an internal sense of peace. And, you know, we can understand that this would be independent of the conditions that are going on. Uh, the unconditioned is a, sort of a dimension that becomes available. All right, the third one, of course, if somebody would read that one. I will. Okay. There are no ascetics or Brahmins outside of the Buddhist community who have the same kind of view that I have. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna uh, decline to talk about this one too much in that it's, the problem with it is that it sounds, when it's taken just out of context like this, it sounds very fundamentalist. And, you know, like, oh, only Buddhists would have this, or I'm special in some way. 
But remember that one thing that a stream enter has is the understanding that everything that arises also passes away. Nothing is permanent, nothing is fixed, including views. And so um, they can't really grasp onto Buddhism uh, as an ism uh, after stream entry. It, it may come up, but it's not something that can be permanently kind of grasped as something really existing. So I think, um, I think I'm just trying to mitigate any sense that this is a, a fundamentalist view. Are there any concerns about that one? I was actually hoping not to spend a lot of time on it. All right. Um, so then we have two, I've highlighted the word nature here. There's two with this red nature. There are two that refer to the, whether I have the nature or the character. Um, this Bhikkhu Bodhi translation says character of a person who is accomplished in view. So would someone read this, um, this next reviewing knowledge, the fourth one? I will. Okay. Though they may fall into a kind of offense for which rehabilitation has been laid down, they quickly disclose, clarify, and reveal it to the teacher or a sensible spiritual companion. And having revealed it, they restrain themselves in the future. Thank you, Joel. Yeah. So this refers to the ethics of a um, stream enterer. Uh, according to the teachings, such a person has excellent ethics to the point where, you now it says that they can still err. You can still um, commit transgressions as a, as a stream enterer. You know, it's not like ethics becomes perfect, but there's an internal sense that as soon as something has gone wrong, as soon as we've said something unskillful, done something unskillful, immediately we, there's a need to uh, clarify it, disclose it, and you know, make some resolution not to in the future. This is obviously very helpful for community life <laughs> to have this sensibility. So I think my understanding of this is that the implication of the text is that such a person would um, immediately, yeah, immediately admit to any fault that they had done. How does this strike the rest of you? I could say something. Um, this brings to mind, Jill and I have spent a lot of time with the monastics up at Abayagiri, and we've spoken with many of the, uh, well, with the two abbots that preceded the current ones, and they have a very specific a way of dealing with any sort of ethical transgression. Yeah. It's a very kind and thorough and good way to deal with it, but they have a very, it's very formal for them to uh, commit to atoning and, and ref ref reforming their, their future actions. So it, it's kind of neat because it, it's laid down. We don't quite have something like that. Yeah. But That's what it, it says for which rehabilitation more, has been laid more down. Normal. Yeah may have to be a little more internal. Yeah, they have a very explicit, thank you for bringing that up. Um, this is, of course, uh, I think this thing where it says rehabilit for which a rehabilitation has been laid down is in fact referring to the vinya there. And for lay people, we need to be a little, I guess we're a little more casual about that. But uh, the sense is that a lay person would find a way to do that. They would, within their cultural um, 
norms. They would go and apologize if that was what was expected, or they would do some action if that was what was expected. Um, it's a powerful internal sense. I, I get the sense. It's a powerful internal sense that if anything is out of alignment, that person would know immediately and would want to, would want to correct it. What a wonderful thing. Can you imagine if society were like this? The whole world would be completely different. I mean, this is, this is one of the clear indications that this is a different way of being. All right. Am I unmuted? No, go, yeah, go ahead, Val. Or no, who is that? This is Susan, iPad. Susan, go ahead. Um, I, so for which rehabilitation has been, the part has been laid down. I'm getting a little confused about that. So that was what Bruce was referring to, is that this sutta is kind of aimed at monastics. And so it's referring to the fact that when, you've, when you are a monastic and have taken those vows, there are particular rules uh, that are, if an, some kind of an ethical breach has been committed, there's a formal procedure by which you admit it and do some rehabilitation and are welcome back into the community. Yeah. But I think we can extend it reasonably to lay people. That's what I'm trying. That's what I'm suggesting. Does that help? Yep. Thanks. Okay. I think it's something that a community could have in general. Even lay communities like people who live in intentional housing communities, for example, often have some kind of rules by which the community can restore relations if something has gone wrong. Okay, and then there's another one about the nature, the character. Could someone read this one? We get a lot of reading this time. There are nice images that go with these, by the way. We should have only done this sutta, huh? Okay, so next, next one, yep. Though they might manage a diverse spectrum of duties for their spiritual companions, they still feel a keen regard for the training in higher ethics higher mind, and higher wisdom. Thank you. And then there's the thing about the cow. Okay, so, um, so I like this one a lot because, uh, you know, they may manage a diverse spectrum of duties for their spiritual companions. What does that mean? Administration, you know, Sangha administration, and other things related to running the community or being in the community, organizing stuff. Um, and, you know, we do that communities we help out in that way um, but it doesn't trump practice so uh, for a stream enter my understanding of this one is that the stream enter would always care more about practice than about um, the more sort of mundane duties of course they would do them and do them kindly and well because that's part of being the community but there's always that sense of when do i get to go meditate again when can i go on retreat <laughs> you know well maybe not in the grasping kind of way but there's still a there's not a sense at all of letting go of practice any other comments on that because you do find this in communities you know communities are compelling and you can get ra really wrapped up in being in the community and doing all those things. Um, and then you realize after a few years of it that you're not sitting anymore. <laughs> okay, Jill. Um, I think the Abayagiri community and the Thai forest tradition mm -hmm. has a sense that they put out all the time that your practice is all 
is also in everything. 24-7, yeah. 24-7. And so they don't, um, they don't look at doing the duties as being different than formal meditation, even though we can see that it is different. But how important it is to carry these same reflections in everything you do. I think and, that's a nice way to say it, yeah. And everything, and, and by the way, they do have a few books called Beginning Our Day, which um, is a, great. a compilation of what they say to the community before the work period begins. There's a work period every morning um, for most of the morning. And so this is a reflection you bring with you as you work, and they're, they're fabulous. It's all available online if anybody's interested. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose the way I was speaking, I could have sounded like there was a difference. Um, but the training in the higher ethics, higher mind, and higher wisdom are to always be considering, how can I wake up in this moment? Um, how can I really uh, meet this moment at, with my deepest understanding? It's easy not to, in terms of community duties, to just kind of get wrapped up in doing it or in hating it <laughs> instead of embracing it. Okay. And then we have two that relate to the strength of a person accomplished in view. Would someone read the first one of these? Sure. Okay. When the teaching and training proclaimed by the realized one are being taught, they pay heed, pay attention, engage wholeheartedly, and lend an ear. Yeah. So that's nice. That's straightforward enough. We like to we like to hear the Dharma. Um, and then there's the second one is somewhat similar. So could you read that one also, Carol? Yeah, sure. When the teaching and training proclaimed by the realized one are being taught. They find joy in the meaning and the teaching and find joy connected with the teaching. Yeah. So this is a, a happy thing, is that there's a sense of really enjoying the Dharma. Uh, and um, so I guess we can consider, you know, for our, for our own understanding, you know, which these are sort of qualities that, you know, it's not like we're supposed to sort of check them all off and say, okay, do I have this or not? I mean, you could if you wanted, but it's also to consider, well, move, if I moved in the direction of each of these, I would be moving toward this thing called stream entry. So we might see which of these seven feels inspiring to us, um, how we might bring more of that in to our, to our practice. Are there other comments on this sutta? Okay. Um, so I had a few things. Let's see. Let's also look at kind of a summary. So here we are, session four. So today, um, we read about how stream entry is this monumental reduction in suffering, um, and that it's a full comprehension of impermanence. And 
some comprehension of dependent arising. You understand how things arise and pass, um, as well as a bunch of other things. I didn't get to fully go into all the qualities of stream entry and the particular exact things that you let go of, but we touched into some of them. And then um, the uh, MN48, the seven quote unquote reviewing knowledges, how a person would know or how a person has changed. Because as I've said, it's not what it is, it's not the experience itself, but it's kind of what comes after, you know, how a person then manifests that and starts living it in their lives. And then the other method is that to know for sure that doubt is gone, to have complete unwavering confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, so this is really good news, as, as Bruce said so succinctly, is that this is available uh, to the sincere lay practitioner. And so we don't have to feel like, oh, we're just practicing some second-rate version, we'll never be as deep as all those monastics, and you know, my life is busy and so forth. Um, there's really, there's sort of a promise that there's a, a turning point uh, after which things do change and it's something that is realizable. So I guess maybe we can return and then I have a few final comments to this one that we started with, which is that we have this question, why am I seeking things that are, that would be, subject to change, subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, why not seek things that uh, are sort of beyond that, things that are more lofty than that, more inspiring than that. In fact, all the way up to this, having a chance to glimpse uh, the deathless or Nibbana, the supreme security from bondage, and doing so is a happy a happy path. Do you remember that path that we read yesterday at the end of the last session, the end of Wednesday? It's natural for someone who is ethical, which is sort of the beginning, to experience freedom from remorse. And then it's natural to experience rapture and joy and tranquility and happiness and concentration. Do any of these things sound bad? So it's, um, there's sort of a way in which the path is an unfolding and an opening to these really um, wonderful qualities of being that we have, that we can share in community, that we can bring to our own lives, that we can use to um, continue on the voyage toward the complete end of suffering. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of promise in all of this. So are there, um, are there further comments? Uh, not on the not on the sutta, but before we get gone, yeah, please. Um, I have some final reflections. Also, go ahead. Um, if anybody wants to or is able to support uh, Kim's teaching, um, she has a um, PayPal thing, and it's <laughs> pay. What is it? PayPal dot. I mean, PayPal dot me slash uncontrived. Uncontrived. Yes. Thank Maybe, you. Do you mind putting it in the little chat box just so it's visible, buddy? Thanks. Okay, so there's that. Um, yeah, so um, I guess I wanna just conclude with a few thoughts about 
sutta study, which is what we've been engaged in together, sutta contemplation and, and the path and all of that. I don't, um, I hope I'm not uh, a polycanon thumping <laughs> Buddhist teacher. Are there any? I, I've never actually met, uh, met anyone who does that. Um, for me, I think study is, has, is really an essential component of my practice. I can't kind of imagine not uh, engaging in that. It helped me from the very start of my practice, studying with teachers and with peers. And now I feel that I have um, some pretty robust study practice on my own, although I love sharing it. Um, I think the written teachings don't provide very many answers, but they are really good at making sure that any answers I come up with, I'm not allowed to get stuck on. So you know, I, all of my answers get questioned through reading these teachings again and again. And as, um, you know, as deep as I go with them, they're always deeper. You know, they're all, they always have more to unfold, kind of like um, I don't know, a mind that keeps producing more gems, <laughs> no matter how deep you go. Um, they don't let you get too comfortable with anything. You have to keep looking. I don't think you can really become stuck on the texts um, because the very, you know, the very process of understanding the Dharma says that the answer is not in a text. You know, we we know we learn that through practice, and yet there's something in the study that. Uh, helps fertilize the soil or till the soil in certain way for me at least, and so I, I offer that. Um, I try to offer that so that maybe others can glimpse at that. The uh, these texts are not really meant to be read intellectually, like we could understand them, like we would, you know, a set of instructions or a textbook or something. Uh, they work kind of more deeply and more subtly than that if we let them. If we let them. Um, so maybe it's a good time to consider, especially like that last quote, especially while we're sheltered in place and you know, living a little bit more with our own mind than we might otherwise, just to consider what's really valuable in your practice and how you approach your practice and if, there, um, if there's any role in it for looking a little more deeply into these texts that inspire the instructions that are given. You know, we try to do it in modern language, but this is a really long and profound tradition, and um, I almost feel like it's hard to convey that sometimes through the media that we're given in the modern West. And I, I really um, want to share that as much as I can. So thank you all for being here, and it's been really wonderful. I welcome further comments. I don't mean to talk a lot, but I wanted to share from my heart a little bit at the end there. Please continue. Ah, okay. So should we keep contemplating things together? Okay. Your, your help through this has been so, um, I, I feel like I would have been lost. Yeah, I certainly would have been lost without it. And I wanted to appreciate this process this unfolding i i agree with you this study just enriches the practice i i would read something and then take a walk and just see what's seen and hear what's heard you know and kind of practice it in real time and and really get a deeper sense of 
a deeper and embodied sense of what of my practice and I think um, that's what it's pointing toward yeah thank you for that discovery (laughs) it's got to be here you know yeah and I thank you for the nice chats I've seen a few there well all right so I'm very happy to um, continue this we could be virtual for now that's what we're doing um my preference would be to read a little bit less each time and do it a little bit more contemplatively. Um, and uh, it's also, of course, easier for all of you. I know you don't have loads of time to just read suttas every two days. <laughs> That's not wasn't really the plan, but uh, anyway, to go on forever with that. But I, I anyway wanted to cover all of this. So um, what sounds good? What time frame? Like weekly or two weeks or what would be good i think weekly i think would would be great for us i think once a week is something we can certainly plan for and put at least for now yeah while we're kind of okay good yeah all right um so then i have the challenge of um i think i know all of your emails but i don't know how to reach you i i will put um i can announce the let's see i can announce it through isc we're having our uh weekly newsletter now so i'll announce i think why don't we just do fridays shall we try for next friday yeah Um, yeah that's good yeah okay thank you margaret um technically i'm on retreat next week but um it's a it's a retreat you doing the utejaniya mindfulness of mind practice given by uh IMC or IRC. It would have been at IRC, but it's not happening there. And uh, my understanding of that kind of practice, my experience with it is that it's actually fairly compatible with daily life. And that's kind of why I agreed to do it in a virtual format. So I'm okay with uh, teaching uh, a week from now. Um, but I think I'll be relying on you to do some of the talking. <laughs> um, uh, I'll try to put together some, let's see, some teachings. I well, you know what I'll do. I'll send it to as many of you as I can remember from this, and that'll be at least uh, some folks will have it ahead of time. Or if you want, you can write your email uh, in the chat box. And well, I'm going to stop recording. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash. Donate.